The religion that not that's not a religion has to have its central design feature a significant response to the meta crisis. That top down aspect, the socioeconomic aspect, has to be taken into account. So if we, you know, if this transformation that we're talking about doesn't start to restructure things, so the ecological crisis or the wealth disparities, if we're not restructuring our, ourselves sort of socio-historically and socioeconomically uh, on this, then, then the project has failed. I know that usually you only do one opening snippet and then get your introduction, but I'm just going to put another little one here because it is really exciting. If we're talking about how we might have been reciprocally narrowed, right, how, how capitalism has done something like a reciprocal narrowing on the options in the world and the options of our agency, we shouldn't despair because there's always the real possibility of changing the dynamical system that it, so that it goes from reciprocal narrowing to reciprocal opening. Hello and welcome back to the Musing Mind podcast. We have been quiet for a few months, but things are kicking off again. Uh, I have about seven conversations lined up over the next two weeks. Um, and I'm really excited by the the direction that's taking shape and the people who are going to be involved. Um, the inquiry of the podcast is always going to be evolving to a certain degree, but it feels like it's entering a, this phase that I might describe as exploring the socioeconomics of subjectivity, right? So what kinds of consciousness does today's capitalism produce and how might different economic policies or different socioeconomic visions change the subjectivity that's being produced? Uh, much of the, the discourse around consciousness is about individual practices like meditation or group practices like circling and psychedelics. Uh, and this is all great for people who are able to engage in those things. But what about everybody else, right? So one of the virtues of socioeconomic policy is that it changes everybody's context in which consciousness develops, right? It alters the environment that, that creates the possibility landscape for our own becoming as human beings. So I have a number of conversations coming up with people who are deeply involved in economic theory and economic policy, uh, and I want to explore what are these specific policies that should be on the table if our project is to create better conditions for the unfolding and development and exploration and play of subjectivity. But today, I get to speak with John Verveke. John is a professor of cognitive science at the University of Toronto, and he's becoming well-known for his magnificent YouTube lectured series titled uh, Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. He is bringing together cognitive science, and Buddhism, Western philosophy, and that perennial question of cultivating meaning in life. And he's building a, a vocabulary, right? A scientific framework to make better sense of religion in a post-religious age or of, of human development that draws from contemplative traditions to create a richer framework for that development, more of a guiding structure or meta-narrative. Um, the, the first 25 minutes or so, we set the context, we kind of establish the arena for the conversation, uh, so we get into how there can simultaneously be what he's calling a meaning crisis, 
and this kind of narrative of progress, right? The optimism of Steven Pinker and Max Roser, the idea that over the past few hundred years, things have been getting better and better on paper and at an exponential rate. So how can there actually be a meaning crisis, right? How can these two things coexist? Uh, and then we move into what I was really excited to speak with John about, right? Much of, much of his work is about developing the need for an ecology of practices or what he calls psychotechnologies that individuals or communities can use to operate on their own mechanisms of experience itself. And I wanted to ask him, you know, what, what it might mean to explore economic policy as itself a form of psychotechnology, right? What does it mean to think of economic policies as setting the conditions for subjectivity to become itself, to explore and develop? So we get into the, the structural dynamics of the meaning crisis, right? And then um, we get into what I think is my favorite connection made so far on this podcast, which is drawing a comparison between Mark Fisher's work on capitalist realism and the cognitive science of what John calls reciprocal narrowing, which ultimately gestures towards a cognitive science of capitalist realism. Um, and I'll talk more about that at the end of the episode. And as always, if you find yourself enjoying the podcast, you can subscribe or rate it on iTunes or share it with a friend. Uh, these are all really helpful ways to support the project. Or if you'd like to support directly, you can always check out the Patreon page. And that is it. Please enjoy my conversation with John Verveke. You've often, you're taking on a lot of projects. Um, your YouTube series was kind of this, this marriage of seemed to me cognitive science and, and questions of, of wisdom cultivation, religion. So I wanted to ask what the ideas, what are the ideas and interests that have kind of cohered and brought together all of your projects? What are the, what are the questions that interest you and that have kind of led you to be exploring what it is you are now? Oh, great. That's a f fantastic question, Oshan. I mean, I really like that question. So the, the, there's a question you might say that's on the cognitive science side, but then it, 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 it leads me into uh, what you might call the existential spiritual side. Or let's, call, uh, let's call that whole side the sapiential side, having to do with wisdom mm. and meaning. Okay, so sort of the science side and the sapiential side. Uh, okay. The spiritual doesn't quite capture everything I want to say about it. Right. Uh, okay, so if you'll allow me that. So on the science side, the, the question that has just intrigued me, and I do all my sort of scientific work around it, is this whole this question about, I think uh, uh, it's the question of the nature of general intelligence. Um, it's the question of what makes you capable of being a general problem solver? What, what's the central capacity that's you know, presupposed in all your special skills and more specific forms of intelligence? What's the, what's the specific capacity of your general intelligence that makes you mm. capable of solving a wide variety of problems in a wide variety of domain in a highly competent manner and learning and, you know, uh, getting great skills in, in specific domain. Like how does the all, what, what's behind that all? And for me, mm -hmm. I, I argue that that's a process that I call relevance uh, realization. Um, this is the issue of how of, out of all of the information and it's a Titanic amount available to you, uh, how do you decide what to pay attention to, what to find salient? And of course, you're not deciding. What I mean is there's some process happening in your brain so that when you walk into a room, you know, it's 
automatic to you. You know, your salience landscape is laid out. There's patterns of obviousness as to what you should do. There's affordances for your interaction, right? And this is what I, I, I want to pick up on, on the relevance realization. I'm using the word relevance realization because it has uh, the, the realization term because it, it has a double meaning. It means both the sense of coming into awareness, like an insight, like, when, oh, I just realized that, but also making real, coming into contact with reality. Because that situation where you come into the room, it's simultaneous you, you coming into something sort of analogous to an insight in which, aha, it makes sense, but but it's mm. also how reality is, you know, disclosing itself to you, how you're coming into contact uh, with the world. And, and so you have all this information out in the world, but it's, it's even more complicated than that. You have all this tremendous amount of information in long-term memory and all think about all the possible permutations and combinations of that. And then you have all of the possible sequences of actions you could perform. Think of all the things you could do and how you could potentially string them together. So you have this huge, this, you know, combinatorial explosive set of options available to you, possible courses of action. And somehow, Somehow, you coordinate those three in a highly fast and highly effective fashion so that you are, right, you've got a salience mm. landscape that's making things obvious, affording your actions, you're calling up out of all of your long-term memory the right information in the right way, and it's being reconstructed and integrated, and all of that is translating into sequences of behavior out of all of the possible courses of action in your problem space so that you actually inter interact effectively, intelligently, with multiple kinds of environments that are themselves dynamic and shifting. Hmm. And that to me is that that's the key scientific question I'm interested in. I want to know how you do that. Now it, it turns out, well, at least, sorry, I shouldn't be so bold. I argue based on, I think good, <laughs> conver good convergent theoretical argumentation and evidence that, if we start to understand that process of intelligence and relevance realization, and then how it gives rise to salience landscaping and, and that sort of perspectival knowing that I was talking about, you know what it's like to be in the room here now, mm -hmm. right? which is not the same thing as having a skill or a theory. It's that sort of here now presence. It's the kind of yeah. thing you're trying to get in good video games, that sense of presence, right? Mm -hmm. So, so that perspectival knowing, right? Mm -hmm. probably also means will tell us something very important about what consciousness is doing and why altered states of consciousness can have an impact on our problem solving right and and mm -hmm. so that's and so topics like insight that bridge between in sort of intelligence and consciousness because think about how an insight you get a sudden shift a self-organized shift in your capacity to solve problems but you also get this change that's what we describe it like a flash of insight right mm -hmm. uh, you know Right and, and how that and how that relates to things like the flow state and mystical yeah. experience and so now you see what's happening as I start to get into this scientifically right I start to make connections I think very readily to these topics of insight flow you know uh, wisdom. And, and related issues like self-deception and how that salience landscaping can bias us in ways we're not aware of. And then this all, I think, points to the deeper connection that this, this relevance realization, it, right, it, it's a way in which we think about that sense of presence. It's a way in which you're present in your body, present to the world, the way the world is present to you, the way you can be present or fail to be present with other mm -hmm. people. You can lose touch with yourself, right? You can lose touch. 
And I think our sense of meaning in life is about this sense of connectedness. So the relevance realization, right, is doing this important functions of making a problem solver. But it's also, and I think for evolutionary reasons, it's feeding back into a motivational drive to do everything we can to enhance and enrich this connectedness because it's so central to our intelligence and our consciousness. But of course, right, what, uh, that that reward of meaning in life serves as sort of a motivational vector and force for the, the more sapiential things we were talking about, the insight, mm-hmm. the flow, the sense of at one minute, the cultivation of wisdom, et cetera. So that's what yeah. sort of how, how it all works for me. I hope that made sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, a couple of places, one just quick response when you're talking about altered states of consciousness and the insights and the way in which those kind of feedback, a lot of the emphasis I've, I've seen on your work, which I love is, is not on any particular content of, of what you realize when you have yeah. an insight or, you know, what you learn. It's about how this shifts your perceptual mechanism or framework in the beginning so that when you come back, the whole architecture operates differently. Um, I really like that kind of processual view of things. Well, um, well, well thank you. I mean, uh, there's two deep inspirations for that, so I want to give credit. One is, uh, the uh, you know, a thing that Arthur uh, Dykeman, who was one of the premiers, right, he said it's ultimately not about altered states of consciousness. It's ultimately about altered traits of character. Right, yeah. right. And I think, yeah. and I think that uh, – so that's one motivation. The other is Stanovich, who argued one of the foundational features of rationality is people coming to value – the processes of their cognition rather than fixating on the products of their cognition. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. I was going to, in the beginning, you were talking about problem solving and I wanted to, I almost half kidding, half serious. I wanted to ask if so much of this is resting on the idea of problem solving and improving our capacity to do so. The, the, the kind of funny question would be, well, what if there was no problem? But then you, uh, I think you answered it beautifully, which is the, the very fact of existing as we are with, with the, the perceptual processes that we have going. The problem is that we are always outmatched by the totality of information and possibilities, that, that we're always operating from this sliver. And so the yeah. problem is created with the kind of scarcity of yeah, of what of what we have at our fingertips and what is all out there at once, whether unconsciously, right? Because like like you talked about, there's a process occurring that I'm not aware of where my architecture is choosing what to make salient to me and what not. Excellent. Um, Excellent. <laughs> I think that's yeah. pretty interesting. No, I think that's fantastic. I think I, I think that's beautifully said. That that our our particular personal problems are ultimately grounded in existential problems of what Cherniak called we're in the finitary predicament. We mm-hmm. always have limited time, limited resources, limited energy, right, uh, mm-hmm. to try and deal with the fact that reality, in the ways I described, is combinatorially explosive for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that ultimately our personal problems are, are constrained by and deeply motivated by sort of an existential problem, the very fact of our being. And, mm-hmm. and you know, as soon as you start talking this way, you start you start sounding like an existentialist philosopher, right? <laughs> and you start you start sounding like you know, a, a sort of, sort of uh, a, you know, a, a Buddhist sage or something. Where you're talking about you know, you must you have to understand the, the finitude uh, and the, the how that's an mm-hmm. existential issue for you that constrains all of the personal problems, right? That mm-hmm. you're focally aware of. But it's I, I think it's just now something that's becoming. 
I think you can make a really powerful convergence argument that this issue is one of the central issues that we need to explain in order to explain not only our cognition, but as you said, sort of, you know, our existential status. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so much when I've, I've been listening to, you know, a number of conversations you've been having. And one of the things that's really stuck out to me is moments when you when you talk about having met and spoken with people like Shinzen Young, some longtime yeah. contemplatives. And so a lot of what your project seems to be doing is making legible these, I, I don't know what to call it, ideas, these processes, these practices that have existed for thousands of years. You're taking that into the language, into the vocabulary of cognitive science. And on one hand, you're showing we need to expand the field in order to, to really kind of... Um, Mm-hmm. welcome and, and make space for this but but that's what you're doing is, is you're you're meeting with these people and they're saying ah yes that's that's a good way to put it right you're bringing it into this cognitive science language thank you for saying that because first of all that was uh, i mean my goal as a cognitive science is to actually afford that kind of reciprocal reconstruction between disciplines that's mm-hmm. what i do cognitive scientist and then what i what i and i call that process synoptic integration and then as you said trying to do that sort of between cognitive science and these sapiential you know right people people and traditions and communities um the fact that uh, i i can reinforce what you're saying many people one of the most uh prevalent uh responses and comments I get is exactly what you're pointing uh, you're pointing to is that, I, you know, I give people a vocabulary, a conceptual vocabulary and a theoretical grammar for articulating things. And that, mm-hmm. and that, that, that allows a kind of discourse and discussion and reflection on these matters. It affords it in a way that wasn't available before. And right. so I, what I want to say very clearly about that, because I think that's an excellent observation on your part, uh, so thank you for that, is I want to say that above and beyond the particular theoretical theses I'm arguing for and the particular you know kind of arguments I'm making, uh, the goal that has priority over that is exactly what you just said, affording that kind of reciprocal reconstruction. That's why I spend a lot of time you know talking to people who are trying to build communities of practices. Mm-hmm. Uh, getting involved with that um, in some deep ways. I'm doing that like with Rebel Wisdom or with Ray mm-hmm. Kelly, people like that. Yeah. Um, so so maybe taking a step forward towards more into the the terrain of, of what you're calling the meaning crisis or what is often being called the meaning crisis. Um, one way I wanted to, to bring that in and set a little context for it, I wanted to bring in a quote that I got from the book you'd written or co-written, uh, Zombies in the 21st Century. Yeah. And I then that. give it a... I wrote that with Christopher Master Pietro and Philip Misovic. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you you took you folks took the the zombie as a kind of metaphor for for this mm. meaning crisis, which was fantastic. Yeah. But so the quote, I'll I'll give it a little context after. The quote is from a gentleman named Brian Walsh, who I believe was the chaplain actually, University of Toronto at one point. Yeah, I um, met him. I met him on the GO train, which is how I came into. How, <laughs> I actually I literally met him in person by accident, which is how I became familiar with his work. Oh, that's awesome! <laughs> Very serendipitous. Um, so he wrote. I'll quote him here. He wrote. Humans are animals who most fundamentally understand what reality is, who we are, and how we ought to live by locating ourselves within larger narratives and meta-narratives that we hear and tell that constitute for us what is real and significant. When such narratives collapse, we are lost in the dislocation, fragmentation, and disorientation of homelessness. In short, one suffers from a worldview crisis, one runs the risk of losing the plot. 
Mm-hmm. And so this is one way that I, th- I think we can definitely approach what the meaning crisis is. Yes. And I want to juxtapose that because I think holding these two is really interesting. I want to juxtapose that with this other narrative that has also been emerging, um, which I, I don't know what we might call it, maybe the Enlightenment style narrative of progress. And this is coming mm-hmm. from folks like Steven Pinker, Max Roser. Um, and if, if folks aren't familiar, just the idea that if you look at the past two, 300 years, um, by most statistical measures that they are presenting, things are getting much better and they're increasingly getting better and, and so on and so forth. It's a very optimistic look, um, infant mortality rates, literacy rates, sanitation, and so on. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to, one of the ways that I understand the meaning crisis or one of the ways I see it is it's this kind of like white cap that is bursting and, and through and, and it's rupturing this otherwise kind of narrative of progress and not necessarily dismantling it. That might, you know, no, we can de- no, no. debate that. But it, I think it's pointing to a blind spot in that narrative. I've always felt that that narrative of things are going well and we should we should feel good about it is missing something. And I think a lot of people are trying to figure out how to point to it. And so the meaning crisis and the metaphor of a zombie to me is showing that we are we are systematically neglecting the interiority, right? That that's that felt yeah. sense of of living. It's, and if take the zombie for example, right? You can from the outside, maybe not how they're usually depicted, but a zombie can look totally normal from the outside. Everything is great, but on the inside, not so much. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to ask you to talk about the meaning crisis, especially as it juxtaposes with this other narrative, right? How do, yeah. how do these two coexist? Yeah, I think that's excellent. Uh, so uh, a good way to start is to make a distinction that's becoming more important in the literature between subjective well-being mm-hmm. um, and meaning in life. Okay, so let's start there because I think one of the ways of uh, uh, of juxtaposing them is to say we must distinguish between them and not equivocate between them. Mm-hmm. Uh, because then we're falling into a kind of deep confusion. Okay, so subjective well-being is, well, the sense like, oh, you know, I sort of feel good. I'm sort of going, things are going well. I'm kind of healthy. I'm sort of happy in this sense, not of, you know, not, not in a meaning sense, but in sort of a hedonic sense that, you know, yeah, I feel good, right? I feel good, right? that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Right. And, 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 and let's be clear. Because uh, I don't want people misinterpreting me. That matters. That's important. Okay. If you don't have that, you'll be, you know, you will be highly motivated to do stuff to try to get it. Okay. Right. And and what we uh, well and so now what do we know about that? Well, we know that a lot of the factors that the Enlightenment has worked on initially do a huge have a huge impact on subjective well being. Right. So, mm-hmm. for example, if you're in poverty, your subjective well being is like really bad. And mm-hmm. if you can if you can lift people out of poverty, it has a huge impact. But what that same research shows is once people are out of poverty, you get into irrationality. Here's why. Because I have to do now I have to do huge increases in wealth to bring about minor changes in subjective well being. Right, right. Right. right? Okay. Money might not buy happiness, but poverty buys misery. Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, same thing with with other factors. I'm just going to, I don't want to canvas them all because for for reasons of time, but that's, that's a clear example of what I'm talking about. So first of all, the enlightenment is right 
to focus on subjective well-being. And so you want, you know, sort of stable political government. You want to get and all the things that go to all the things that go towards lifting people out of poverty, improving their health, removing sort of violence in their in, in their surroundings. And, and the Enlightenment, you know, and people like Pinker are exactly right. That does make human lives better in a way that kind of universally matters to human being, but not in a linear fashion. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's the first point I'm making. After a certain point, it becomes irrational to pursue them because the inter the return on investment, the diminishing returns, like the return on investment goes down uh, really dramatically. So there's that issue. Right. And so part of what's going on is, I think, and only one part is people are sensing ah, you know, we're, we're working harder and there's sort of more stuff, right? And yet it's not translating into significant increases, right, in mm -hmm. my subjective well-being. So that's one point. The second is the distinction I made. So I want to give you an example of well, where a clear example of where subjective well-being and meaning in life come apart. Mm -hmm. And then I'll explain what it is. And here's one that's fair, quite universal. Um, and this is having a child. Okay, if right. you want to have anything that will really crush your subjective well-being, because you're, <laughs> you're, you're not sleeping, you're not eating properly, you're not, right, you're getting, you're getting sick more often, your relationships are, are being challenged, your relationship to, with your partner usually becomes more conflicted, your finances are harmed, your freedom is diminished, your social network, right, is, is frayed. And you're, you know, you're going to actually lose years off your life. Right. Why, why do people do it? Because <laughs> all of, all, although all of that goes down reliably, you know, what goes up meaning in life. Mm -hmm. So that's, I'm trying to give you a clear case, right. Of how these two are not to be identified with each other. Right. So, so what is it that people are getting with the child that? aren't these factors that go into right subjective well-being so well think about it it's this kind of connectedness we were talking about earlier one of the let, let me give you a clear example one of the things having a child does so one of the things that is going to come to you if you're in that project is you're going to get one of the most significant challenges to your egocentrism that you've ever had mm -hmm. because you can't be the center anymore the child has to be the center right and so right. There's this orientation of a connectedness to something other than myself that has a value independent of my egocentric desires, right? There's a connection to something bigger than myself, if you allow me to speak metaphorically. That, and Susan Wolf has argued this, this is one of the most significant contributors, this sense of mattering to something other than yourself, outside of your egocentric desires and goals, that is significantly constitutive of meaning in life, right? Mm -hmm. And also what's 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 happening here? Well, you have to go through a process of self-transcendence, self-transformation. There's a kind of developmental connectedness to yourself. We 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 use the metaphor of growth for that. You feel that you're growing as a person because you have a connection to yourself that is affording a kind not not you're not just learning more, you're becoming a new kind of person with a new sets of values, a new connection to yourself in the world. So that 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 there's that growth that connected to your to yourself there's the mattering to other people there's being caught up 
agapically, loving something in a creative fashion, not to consume it or not to enter into reciprocity. You don't love a child for those reasons. You love a child because you're trying to transform something into a person, a fully fledged, morally statist person, right? And mm-hmm. functioning person. And so there's also the sense of being in, in, in involved in a long-term narrative, right? That gives you a sense of how to prioritize your goals. So there's that kind of sense of connectedness to your future that we we capture with the term purpose right right and then finally right what 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 we're also looking for and 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 this doesn't actually contradict what i said about the egocentrism but it's still there we also want to be in attachment relationships i don't mean attachment in the buddhist sense i mean in the psychological sense we want to be involved in relationships in which you know human development and person making is really important and we want to we, we want to be in those because we not only want to care, we want to be cared for. Um, and typically yeah. when we have a child, right, we get enmeshed into a community of some kind uh, as well. So you, what I'm trying to show you is all the things that, right, uh, that are sort of, and this is what the research is showing, are needed for meaning in life that are not going to be addressed if you are trying to just in- increase the uh, the measures for subjective well-being. So I think this is the two ways in which the Enlightenment thinkers are missing it. First of all, they, although I agree with them and they're right, and Pinker's graphs uh, for all of their controversy, I think do point <laughs> do point to the fact that that you know the Enlightenment has reliably increased subjective well-being. But but again, the first mistake is the, there was the presumption that there would be, that that was a linear relationship, a linear correlation, and it's not. And the second deeper mistake is to think that subjective well-being is is sufficient for meaning in life, and it's not. So I think the two what people are missing is there's there because of the first mistake they're sort of getting a sense of there's something more. And very often, what, and we can talk about this in a few minutes, there's symptoms that the society is not particularly affording or hospitable to cultivating, you know, these connections of, uh, of meaning in life. And so, uh, you know, so there, you know, you got, you, you know, the graphs that Pinker doesn't put on very much or talk very much, you know, you're getting the, this, these increases, um, even in places of significant affluence, like Silicon Valley, of mental health issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, of reports of loneliness, of people engaging in, you know, in the virtual exodus, preferring uh, the virtual world because the virtual world has a narrative. It has a clear set of rules for how you can self-transcend, right? It, right. it, 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 it gives you it gives you all these things where it, it makes you the hero so you can matter to things beyond you, right? That's why people love the virtual world, these, vir- these games, because they have the missing meaning and life features that they're not finding in their real life. Or you find, you know, the addiction crises that we're going through. So, you have all these markers that uh, that are symptomatic of the fact that although in many ways we have created a world um, in which subjective well-being is more realizable, um, we're we're also uh, we're getting clear evidence that there's a really important missing piece. And the thing about this is, you know, if meaning in life is left unaddressed, it, it, it it's very destructive of people. It can even be fatal. Right. Right. Yeah. Not not to jump too far ahead here, but a lot of this enlightenment style work has been predicated upon the the kind of final end of subjective well-being. And 
that you're saying that is not sufficient. That doesn't quite go far enough. And relating this back to Brian Walsh's idea of we've, we've lost the plot. One of the, yeah. one of the outcomes or one, one of the elements that um, I'm getting a lot from your series that you've done a lot of work on is talking about what would it mean to establish what I think is, is being loosely called a religion of no religion. And yeah. or or a religion that's not a religion. I keep right. moving between between the two titles because neither neither one is accurate. Uh, and so right. yeah, please keep continue. Yeah, and and that's it. Even despite the perils of trying to put a label to that and and what that means and what it invokes, the need is that it's pointing to our lack of a meta narrative to kind of orient everything else to to give this sense of purpose, this kind of narrativity or or idea of progression towards something beyond just that that subjective well-being component. Um, mm-hmm. One of the ways I, I spoke previously with a guy named Zach Stein and oh, I know Zach. He, he's a great guy. yeah, it's a, it's important work. He, he needs to be more well known. I agree. I agree. Um, he, he talks about what he calls the meta crisis is convergence of a number of crises, civilizational, uh, scale crises as ultimately a crisis of human development, right? Yeah, which, right. which I think is pointing to the same idea that we're not, we're not going far enough uh, that we've, that we've lost the plot that's kind of guiding progression. One, one of the ways that I, I've been thinking about your work and what a religion that is not a religion means and why it needs to, why it has a role in the discourse still is it's trying to show that despite whatever relativity, whatever contexts we create for ourselves, something that is wisdom exists beyond those relative contexts. There's something yeah, yeah. that that transcends that, right? And yeah, yeah. what the meta narrative does is it threads through all of the different contexts, all the diversity, you know, that 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 we cultivate in the 21st century. It's maintaining the shared idea about what wisdom is and the process of its cultivation to kind of extend that notion of human development beyond where we might say it is kind of come to come to a, a rest, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, one of the ways that that you've talked about that you've spoken about this is uh, this was from your book again, where you wrote that uh, the universe went from being a beautiful living cosmos unfolding a great story to a lifeless series of random collisions signifying nothing. Right. So again, we've lost mm-hmm. the plot and carrying from that, you then wrote, this is one of my favorites. Uh, there is a deep dissatisfaction with everyday existence and a disquieting horror of its perceived inescapability. And so this that that wall at the end where we per, where we perceive the inescapability where we feel paralyzed where we feel stuck um yeah. that's where where I see this this religion that is not a religion functioning right is 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 yeah, a participatory right. transforming yeah. that response right and so I, I, and that, and that's the question so what does it mean to to transform that dissatisfaction to to extend the notion of human development beyond you know where where it has not gone far enough. And, and this is where I think you get into to practices and so on. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Wow, that, whew, that's a really excellent way of formulating this issue and turning it into a question. Um, <laughs> uh, wow, that's really good. I th- just one tone, I think Thomas Bjorgman actually came up with the I, sort of the original idea of the metacrisis. And then Zach, of course, has done some excellent work on it. Um, uh, I just wanted to mention that because I think uh, Thomas's work is also something uh, that people should pay, pay more attention to. Because the reason why that's particularly relevant is he also sees it as a, as a question of how do we afford the development that is missing or, uh, and needed. So uh, l- l- let's try and do this step by step, if you'll allow me, because I can't give you like a two minute answer to that. <laughs> right. We might have to we might have to do a bit of dialogue. So let let's pick up first on what what this religion of not a religion is and 
um, I, I, I point to the ongoing work, you know, with Jordan Hall that I'm doing and the work, mm-hmm. the partnership with him is really I- integral to devo- developing this. And we're going to be meeting again today. Um, mm. We've had, we've had three, we're two meetings on this one. We've published as a video. Another one is private. We'll probably start publishing some other ones, but nice. let's, let's, let's say, let's go step by step. First of all, what am I picking up on? I pick, remember this sense of connectedness I've been talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the possible, and I, I think it's many people consider it a highly plausible etymological origins of the word religion is the word religio. But what religio means to it means to bind together, to connect, right? Mm-hmm. And although I think you're right to talk about uh, how Brian invoked the notion of plot, but Brian actually also invokes in the, in the quote you read the notion of losing a sense of being at home mm. right and that and why i say that is because the term that he uses is the, the term domicide which is the loss of the sense of being at home when you feel at home right you you feel again that sense of connectedness to yourself to your world to other people that's why you like being at home that's why you find home a potentially meaningful and that's why when you lose home and remember you can lose home both physically and also just psychologically, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we've, we've all been in places where we have a dwelling, but it's not our home. That sense of domicide, here's a way of thinking about it. Domicide is a sense of being culture shocked, but within your own culture, mm. right? So that the, the the sense of being at home, that deep participatory knowing, that, that, that sort of mutual shaping and fittedness between you and the world. And, and Chris and Philip and I talk about that as this agent arena relationship. That is what is uh, being sort of deeply frayed. Mm-hmm. Now, what we need, as you said, is not more theory. Because if, if what, I'm, what I just said is right, then the problem isn't at the level of our propositions and the belief. The problem is that deep, the deep, these deeper levels of the processes of our connectedness, many of which, right, uh, you know, are, are 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 presupposed by our capacity for theorizing and argumentation. This is what sort of a lot of phenomenology and f- what's called 4E cognitive science, mm-hmm. I think, is, is is arguing. So we, as you say, we need the and we need practices, but they have to be. If you'll allow me a metaphor, they have to be deep practices. They have to reach deeply into that existential problem we were talking about earlier. Now, the idea is that this, this is basically a problem of religio, a problem of getting these deep connections to work so that we feel, you know, in, a, in, a, in an existential sense at home. So we're not suffering domicide within our culture and within our environment and, with, and the thing that binds those two together within our worldview. And what we argue in the book is we are actually suffering disconnection in, in all of those, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in a profound way, we're suffering, like I say, this sort, of, this sort of domicide culture shock within our own culture. So we need practices that recover, and, and I want to I hyphenate this word. We need to recognize, right? We need to recognize, reactivate, reappreciate religio so that mm. we can accentuate it, so that we can bring back Right, the enhancement of the the this this connectedness uh, that's being lost. Now, the the things that the, the way you do that, right? Because human beings are very complex, uh, you know, these very complex self-organizing autopoetic dynamical systems. The way you intervene in them, you can't just do one-shot interventions. You have to have com- you have to have a complex ecology of practices. That's why you get things like the eightfold path. We have all these things that have to be cultivated in a mutually reinforcing fashion. You sort of have to create 
a dynamical system that can couple to the dynamical system that's, that's you. That's why I say you have to create this ecology of practices that so, can sort of dynamically couple to you as a dynamical system mm-hmm. to bring about this deep kind of transformation. And the things that have done that for us in the past, right, is religion. And religion all it did that and it did something else, which is something you also put your finger on, which is, as you said, the sort of universal aspect of wisdom. Mm-hmm. When you take a look at that machinery we were talking about earlier, that adaptive machinery of intelligence and consciousness, what, what, what I, and I make an argument for that, you know, an extended argument throughout the series, the very machinery that makes you adaptive is the same machinery that makes you prone to self-deception. Mm-hmm. And, and so, right, what cultures need perennially, right, across time and history is they need ecologies of practice that not only enhance religio, but enhance religio while also ameliorating self-deception. And that's, when you put those two together, that to me is what I'm meaning by wisdom. Mm -hmm. And so we need ecologies of practice that help us reliably and systematically overcome the self-deception, all the bullshit that we are mm-hmm. overwhelmed with. And this is a way in which people also talk about the meaning crisis, a sense that there's just more and more bullshit everywhere. Right. We need, we need to deal, we need to be able to reliably and systematically cut through that both individually and collectively. And we need that to be, you know, integrated with, we need the ecology of practice to also be, have the, the integrated goal of affording enhanced religio and religions have done that. So for all of there are, I think, legitimate reasons why we criticize them. They are nevertheless our best template. Now, here's why the religion that's not a religion, okay? I would argue that one of the significant factors for domicide for many people is that the established religions that used to do this so well, and I give I give in the series convergent argument for many other thinkers like Tillich and, you know, and Heidegger's. Mm-hmm. So this is not just my argument, right? But one of the reasons I was specifically, the, one of the reasons we argued in the book, and Chris and I are doing writing another uh, book right now, is that most, uh, I, I would say all, maybe, is that too bold? Gee, I'm worried about hubris here. Okay. <laughs> uh, all of the, the, the ways of wisdom, both sort of philosophical and religious, and they overlap in tremendous degrees, right? It's only mm-hmm. recently that we pulled those two apart. All okay. of them were, were born out of the axial revolution, and all of them are bound up with the two worlds mythology of the actual revolution, that there's we're sort of in this everyday world that is somehow decayed or fallen or illusory or not real. And we have to somehow get to the real world, the heaven world, you know, the transcend like and 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 wisdom is about this self-transcendence. And you have this picture of reality that therefore make that that, that homes your pursuit of wisdom. It says, oh yes, this is why you pursue wisdom because the world is structured this way. And this is right. This is, you need to make this leap. You need to ascend, right? And you need to bridge between heaven and earth and you need to reconcile God and man, all of this language. The problem is, so the psychotechnologies are bound up in a mythos. I don't use myth because we've, We've made that term a pejorative term, right? But it's it's bound up in all of this mythos of the two worlds mythology that has been consistently, right, and increasingly undermined by things like you know the Protestant Reformation, the Scientific Revolution, the Industrial Revolution, the secularization of the political domain and the mm-hmm. economic domains, the secularization of our healthcare, of our education. You know, 
All of these yeah. things have conspired to under, undermine that two-world mythology. So for many people, they cannot feel at home in the religions. Now, our culture is misframing this as a problem of, I can't believe it. That's not the central issue. <laughs> That's not the central issue. And arguing about trying to change people's beliefs, I would argue, is missing and misframing the real problem. The real problem is people f- can't feel at home in these religions. Most of the people that are nuns, N-O-N-E-S, have no, they, and they're a growing group, right? They mm-hmm. are not what you would call sort of standard enlightenment atheists. Many of them do all kinds of weird, eclectic, you know, sets of spiritual practices, right? right? Because, because they, 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 they have that hunger. But the traditional religions, right, mm-hmm. they, they don't feel at home in them. Right. right, and, and they and they they're well aware that the the, the purported secular alternatives, you know, the pseudo religious ideologies of Nazism and fascism and communism, etc., ha, ha, have drenched the world in blood. So that's not an option. Mm-hmm. So right. they realize, right? They they need something that's not a religion, right? But they don't want the secular alternatives. So they also need it to be something like a religion. That's why I, so I'm putting a name on a problem. It's, that you right. say it's a contradiction, but it's because there's a tension there. We need something that's not a religion, but it's also not the secular alternative. It needs to be a religion that's not a religion. And that's the problem of trying to create, right? So try to somehow get a dynamic system, an ecology of practices that affords wisdom and self-transcendence, but that is no long that no longer is trying to home itself within the two worlds mythos or within a political ideologies. That's mm-hmm. the issue. That's the issue, I think. Yeah. And where I jump off here, where I, I really want to participate in a particular element of, of this discourse, which is when we get into the ecologies of practice and, and exploring these various psychotechnologies, I, I actually think that this has been flourishing over the past few years and, and recently. It, it feels to be exponentially increasing. It is. It is. Yeah, it exactly. Is, totally. yeah. which, which, is, which is great. It's heartening. It's exciting. It's, it's what a time to be alive, right? But where, where I'm interested, and I don't know if this is just because I have a background in economics, I, I, I'm interested in how do we take this same motivation and rather than asking, what can I do? And in an individual sense, what can we do as a small community, whether it's uh, you know the monastic academy trying to form new literal communities of practice and revive the monastic yeah. tradition? What are the structural kind of parallels to this conversation, right? So one of, one of the phrases I've been I've been playing with is what would it mean if we think of certain socioeconomic policies as themselves forms of psychotechnologies? And the way that oh, I think about yeah, that, yeah, yeah, good, good, keep going. That's inc- that's really exciting. Keep going. Yeah, yeah. The way the way that I think about that, especially differentiating between policy and for lack of a better term, the individual will is these kind of like you mentioned universal, you mentioned healthcare, universal healthcare is going to redesign the context in which we become, in which we take up various yep. practices, right? It does, um, for sure, for sure. Yeah. One one of the thinkers who who I've been drawing a lot here is is Peter Sloterdijk, the German philosopher. And yeah, yeah, his yeah, his much. thing that he like hammered into my brain is that Everything we do is a practice, right? Practice is built of repetitions. And, and he, he frames life as what he called an operatively curved space where everything always feeds back on to, to participate in our process of becoming. So 
I'm thinking about economic frameworks as ways to not necessarily redesign, but how do we how do we nudge the the framework of society, the sociocultural yeah. institutions that create the or the possibility landscape? Because I think to use your your terminology a little bit, the salience landscape changes in in accord or in relationship with those kinds of structural dynamics. And there's always going to be, you know, what does it take to be somebody who is not only has the means to meditate. Uh, twice a day to participate in in whatever is happening, but also just the luck of of being a human being. There's there's some people. There's always a degree of, and I want to use this loosely, a degree of privilege or a degree of you yeah. are lucky that you have the machinery to do this. And so what I'm thinking yeah. about is how do we extend beyond you know the small groups? And to me that gets into economic policy. I think uh, yeah yeah sort of socio political ec- economic policy right because um, uh, trying to. Uh, you know, I, I don't have the training you do. I just did a couple undergrad courses in sort of economics, but I, I was sort of convinced that they, you know, they're. And my supervisor uh, w- was actually a, a philosophical critic of classical economics. Hmm. So that that's sort of where where I come from. Um, I, I, I think, first of all, I think what you just said was brilliant. I think that's fantastic. I do want to point out what I've just said, which is I, I, I don't, I don't, I, I'm hesitant to comment on areas where I don't have the requisite right. expertise. Right. Okay. So, like in other areas, you, I, you know, I'm very confident because I've done research, I ran experiments, I've, you know, debated issues. I've done, I've done a lot of the science, right? So, right. I, I feel, and a lot of the philosophy and the history, I, I, I've done those. So, I, 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 I I'm going to be much more hesitant and tentative here because I do not want to speak beyond the scope of my limited expertise. Mm-hmm. What I can do, first of all, is to acknowledge, I think, the, 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 the legitimacy and the truth of what you're saying. I think another thing, and, and this is what uh, Jordan Hall and I are talking about, we, I, I think one of the design features, let me just say something about this. When, when Jordan and I are talking about design features, people have sometimes thought, well, they're trying to design the religion that's not a religion. And how ridiculous and hubristic is that? That's <laughs> not what we mean by design feature. I want to mm-hmm. pick up on what you just said. This is already happening. All these com- all these communities, these emerging you know ecologies and practices, and the attempt through the new medium, uh, you know, the social media, right, to create right. networks and, and, and an emerging culture. Even all of that is already happening. When we're talking about design features, we're trying to well do what we talked about at the very beginning of this. Oshan, can we bring a conceptual vocabulary and a theoretical grammar to this that right. can, you know, really, really help afford and facilitate its development in the direction we want to go? And here's the divine feature. The religion that not that's not a religion has to have its central design feature, right? Mm-hmm. The, you know, the, the significant response, a significant response to the meta-crisis. So mm-hmm. that is why what you said, right? And that that's a lot because that again is like you said, it's going to take transformation at the individual level, the the community level, and then at, as you said, uh, sort of the social structural level. Mm-hmm. And I I I I I totally agree with that. Uh, so um, this is just a, a way of saying that that top down aspect, the socioeconomic aspect, has to be taken into account. So if we you know, if this transformation that we're talking about doesn't start to restructure things, so the ecological crisis or the wealth disparities, um, or, or you know, because we're, we're it's going to come back, you know, uh, an energy crisis. All of the of these, if, if we're not restructuring 
our, ourselves sort of socio-historically and socio-economically uh, on this, then, then the project has failed. Um, mm. That's what I mean. It's a it's a very stringent, strong condition. You know, I mean, the other religions had sort of their 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 their, their non negotiable goals, like getting to heaven or achieving nirvana, right? You know, uh, right. this is this 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 is this this is the thing uh, that has to be made central. So that is what I can talk about with sort of confidence, and I can also say I see what you're saying. Now, as to what that means, like Jordan and I have talked about some ideas about different patterns of social of social organization and one thing i can talk about here because this is also where i do have some expertise is how distributed cognition works distributed mm. cognition is the is where is the locus of collective intelligence it's what we do by networking brains together the way the internet networks computers together so the internet can do things that no individual computer can do distributed cognition has a kind of collective intelligence that can solve problems that individuals can't do and what we can look at is we can look at well how what's what are the good networks for getting distributed cognition going hmm. and one of the things that has seemed obvious to us is, and I take this almost to be like a cognitive cultural grammar for us, you know, is the idea, well, the way you solve, the way you, the way you structure distributed cognition is sort of Iron Age hierarchies, right? Mm. It turns out that that's actually not the best way to structure distributed cognition for solving problems. And if what we're doing is structuring right, social structures, distributed cognition, to solve the hornet's nets of problems that we're calling the metacrisis, then we should be trying to get the best organization we can of distributed cognition for problem solving. And it looks like you don't want a hierarchical organization. You want what's called a small network, a dynamically reconstructing small network structure, right. the kind of structure the internet has. And also, by the way, I would argue, but I would argue that's also how the brain is organized. That's how mm. you get all these individual neurons, which, and there's a lot of them with a lot of connections <laughs> to be well organized in a constantly dynamic fashion so that they become good at problem solving. And so we should be paying, we should try to break the grammar. And this is really transgressive. I know it's almost Gnostic. We need to be breaking the grammar of the hierarchy, which is also wedded to the two worlds mythology. Because the one way in which people reinterpreted hierarchies in the actual revolution, because hierarchies exist before, right? But they mm. reinterpreted the hierarchy as the ladder, the pyramid between, right, the two worlds. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, we need to break out of this hierarchical way. Like, like, like obviously, we're not going to get rid of all hierarchies. That would be a ridiculous prescription. Right. What I'm saying is, let's not make it the only structure we consider. We need to consider dynamical small world network formations, social structuring, if we want to organize people to solve the metacrisis, and it's already implicitly there. Your brain works this way. Small groups set up as small world networks. So the, the scientists running the rovers on Mars, they organize themselves as a dynamically reconstructing small world network, not as a hierarchy to solve mm -hmm. the very difficult problems of managing things long distance on Mars. Uh, the internet is set up like a small world network, a very dynamically reconstructive one. So I'm not prescribing something that's, you know, like unicorns or pixies. 
It's mm-hmm. already reliably in place. So we should be paying more careful attention to that. Well, that's exactly one of the ways that I think about uh, the policies. So, so I'm, I'm interested in, in, I look a lot at universal healthcare. I look a lot at things like universal basic income or international tax policy. And one of the heuristics I use to make sense of what am I looking for? What are the design features that we should be keeping in mind? I, I think about it in terms of how can we afford the optimal or even even maximal self-organizing capacity what are, what are right, what's the right. minimum amount of centralized governance that affords the maximum uh, amount of yeah. bottom up organization right yeah um, and I, I you know i had a feeling that that you would you would follow in the tradition of academics which is knowing when they shouldn't comment on something i had a feeling you <laughs> you would you would mention that wasn't your expertise so what i did i i, I want to try to draw a parallel between something you've done a lot of cognitive scientific work on and uh work in in, in kind of the socioeconomic the sociology please, of it all please please, please um, do. are can you I say one, can I, can yeah, I please. Say one thing uh, I want to point out that that, that would be a, 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 another uh, these two are interlocked in my mind and i should have been more explicit um and I, but I think you put your finger on it and you foregrounded it and explicated it in a way that should be flagged uh, with salience. This idea of giving priority to the self-organization, self-correcting, dynamic mm. aspects, which means these systems will periodically go through potentially criticality. And we, mm. have to, we have to sort of take that into account. I think that's also something. So if we talk about sort of wiring as a small world network, we should think about it sort of firing. I'm using a brain mm, analogy yeah. in, a, in, a, in a self-organizing, highly self-organizing, self-correcting fashion. I think that's something also. So instead of pursuing stability, right, which is mm-hmm. maybe also what, you know, that, that's a, 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 a maladaptive holdover from Iron Age hierarchies, we <laughs> should be pursuing self-correction. Yeah. I think part of what's part of what's degenerated in our political discourse is we've got, we've lost the idea of democracy as a process of self-correction and that we should ultimately have allegiance to the self-correction as to our particular positions. Yes. I think that so I just wanted to say that I think those two are deeply intermeshed the small world network and the the self-correcting the dynamic self-organization that you pointed to. I just yeah. wanted to really flag that. Absolutely, yeah, I agree. Um all right, so so the idea I want to draw out. Have you are you familiar at all with the work of uh, Mark Fisher? I've heard the name, but no. I, people people keep recommending his work too. Yeah, so he, I don't, I don't know how to describe him, but he he wrote a book called Capitalist Realism, mm-hmm. and it, it's very much on the subjectivity of capitalism. And one of the things, one of the main themes he drew out in that was he was building on uh, Frederick Jameson's kind of infamous quip at this point that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. And what Fisher expands on is he explores the, the way in which ca- one, of the, one of the products that capitalism produces is a particular type or orientation of subjectivity in which it becomes increasingly difficult to imagine an alternative. So his thesis is that capitalism makes it so that we cannot imagine any alternative. We are stuck at the end of economic history, so on and so forth. And what I wanted to see, explore if it's possible, is if we can link this to some work that you have done on reciprocal narrowing. Yes. Um, I was just going to say that. <laughs> exactly. that, that you know, oh, wow. What an excellent connection. And that also goes towards the whole idea that we are always working within a cultural cognitive grammar. Exactly. Exactly. And I'll, I'll turn this over to you to, to kind of flesh it out. But what, so you brought this up in terms of addiction and I'll, I'll do a poor man's job and you can, you can round it out where, <laughs> 
what occurs in reciprocal narrowing, or at least in addiction, right? There, the old paradigm was or thought was that it's a biochemical imbalance, um, and that that's not far enough down on the chain of causality. That what occurs is is a process, and and to use your word, a participatory process in which the possibilities available to us in life. Let's say I'm an addict. As I engage with, let's say it's booze is my thing. As I engage with booze, it becomes increasingly difficult to imagine doing anything other than increasing with booze. And as that, yeah, as that yeah, goes yeah. on, my behaviors narrow and narrow and narrow. And yeah. so Fisher, Fisher's, if we want to draw that out, Fisher's point is that by engaging with the machinery of capitalism, our capacity to imagine alternatives gets smaller and smaller and smaller and narrows. So I wonder, I wonder if we can draw any parallels between them. I want to explore this with you. I think this is a fantastic proposal. Uh, wow. Wow. I'm really enjoying this conversation. Um, <laughs> Me too. Uh, so this is a, I think this is a brilliant idea of my, my colleague um, and good friend, the neuroscientist Mark Lewis, who I think is one of the premier experts on addiction. And mm. he sort of challenges the disease model of addiction. There's sort of this foreign thing inside you that's sort of twisting your health and compelling you. Uh, to act in a certain way. I want to be clear about uh, Mark, neither Mark nor I, we're not saying that there are, isn't a biochemical aspect to addiction. Mm. That's, that's a ridiculous claim. What we're saying is that's massively insufficient. The disease model that basically claims that's a, uh, a sufficient explanation of the behavior of addiction, that's what's being challenged. Mm -hmm. So Mark, Mark replaces a disease model with a learning model. But as you said, it's a, it's, a, it's a participatory kind of learning. And the idea, let's take your booze example. So I, I drink some booze and I'm drunk. And so I lose a lot of cognitive machinery. My, my problem solving abilities degrade, right? Of course they do, right. right? Now that, I do it because it's alleviating some stressors, but I pay a price for that. My cognitive flexibility, my problem solving degrades. Now, as I lose cognitive flexibility, the options the re my relevance realization machinery gets screwed and the options in the world that become available to me, I lose some of those options and that, that narrows the world. Now, as that, as I start to see the world as more narrowed, as having fewer options, I start to lose cognitive flexibility because I start to go into kind of a scarcity mentality. I start, mm. oh, I'm losing options. And when people go into scarcity, they start to lose cognitive flexibility. They start yes. to feel more short-term in their thinking. So I start to lose some of my, more of my cognitive agency. And then as I lose more of my cognitive agency, the world options shrink until eventually I shrink so much and the world shrinks so much. I can't see any other world possible than the one I'm in. And I can't see any other self than what I am. Mm. And that's to be the addict. And yeah. so is that, is that, is that, is that, does that help uh, yeah, bringing that up? That, absolutely. That's a reciprocal narrative. Now, first of all, before we lose it, I want to point something out because I got to do this in person with Mark when we were at lunch. I said, Mark, you know, I get this is brilliant, the reciprocal narrowing. But if reciprocal narrowing is a thing, then reciprocal opening is a thing. Yes, well. the opposite direction, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and I've tried to argue in the series that I think Plato got, gave a model for that in, in that in the notion of anagogy. Uh, and, and Mark went, oh, yes, that has to be the case. And so what I, what I what we want to say, first of all, so we could sort of keep this as a meta thing to keep in mind. If we're talking about how we might have been reciprocally narrowed Right, how, how capitalism has done something like a reciprocal narrowing on the options in the world and the options of our agency, so to, to that we come to something that is deeply analogous uh, to the addict. We shouldn't despair because there's always the real possibility of right 
changing the dynamical system that it, so that it goes from reciprocal narrowing to reciprocal opening, which means mm-hmm. we don't, uh, the reason I'm saying that, and this is kind of important, I think, Oshan, because, right, I want to break out of, you know, the apocalyptic revolution as the way we break out of reciprocal narrowing. Well, no, we mm-hmm. might not, in fact, revolution might be just too much criticality. What we, in fact, probably need is a process of reciprocal opening. Yes. Um, and uh, so I want to, again, I'm trying to break out of both the left and right ways, which I think are now becoming increasingly unhelpful of trying to address this issue. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You, you mentioned, you mentioned the term scarcity and I know you've, you've done some work on specifically uh, what you've called meaning scarcity. And I thought that this was, it's really relevant. and, And the way you framed it, you kind of touched on it just now is that when we feel a scarcity of meaning, when, when we don't see avenues to generate and, and, and participate in these more meaningful ways of living, we cling to the, the slender sources that we currently have. Um, yes. and, and I think this is also at play when we think about socioeconomic evolution, that the more difficult it becomes to realistically entertain alternatives, the more we are driven to cling to what we have already. Yeah. Yeah, right. That's, and, and, that's- that's what the work on scarcity shows. Right. Uh, the, the, the book on scarcity, uh, I, I'm probably going to mispronounce his name, Mulane mm. Athen, uh, is I think a good book for people to take a look at. Uh, yeah. Because a lot of convergent research showing this. I, I want. I, I, I would want to connect that that argument you just made. Right. So. So what does that mean? Given our earlier thing, people are going to try and push more and more on subjective well-being. Mm-hmm. Right, because because they can't get any of them, or they're getting very little. They're experiencing scarcity of meaning in life, right? And so that's gonna that's gonna that could potentially. I think there's an argument to be made here. More work needs to be done. So I'm pointing to an argument that I need to make, not one that I can make right now, right? Mm-hmm. But I think you can make important connections towards you know the the the, the, the massive rise, and if we and it's deeply affecting our political system of narcissism as mm-hmm. an overwhelming thing, because like. Like, like the, if you if you're if you're sort of hypersensitive and hyper vigilant and hyper uh, oriented towards your subjective well being, right? You want that could I think drive uh, and you, if you're hyper oriented towards your subjective well being and you sort of have a existential hole within yourself because you're not getting meaning in life, I think that helps to explain why narcissism is becoming so prevalent. I think that's important. Right. Um, and we need we need to pay attention to that. The second thing is I would want to make a connection to Eric Fromm's mm. criticism of capitalism, yeah. um, which I do mention in this series. It ultimately goes back to the Stoics, right? Which Fromm argues that what he calls the market mentality um, traps us into a kind of perpetual uh, modal confusion in which we we mistake we are trying to get needs of being and becoming the developmental needs of meaning in life through the having mode of control and consumption. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and capitalism likes, if I, if I can personify capitalism to keep us <laughs> in modal confusion, because if I can convince you, I, it, it's a mistake, but if I can convince you that you can become mature by buying a car, I can get you to buy my car. Or if I can convince you that you, right, can, you know, be in love by having more sex, then of course I can commodify sex in a mm-hmm. powerful, powerful way. And the thing yeah. about modal confusion, and this is Fromm's point, is it's ultimately deeply frustrating 
because because you're in the wrong mode, because you're in the having mode and you're trying to solve being needs, um, you're going to be increasingly frustrated. So it's going to it's going to it's going to interact and exacerbate with that scarcity. Because as I'm frustrated, I'm going to I'm going to intensify my few my failing efforts to get the thing that's missing. But I'm also going to also be continually failing precisely because of the modal confusion. That's fascinating because that's exactly uh, we can go all the way back to Adam Smith. And he knew this in, in his book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments that preceded yeah. his Wealth of Nations. He, he points out exactly this fact. He knew that we, even at that point in time, confuse capital accumulation or confuse these kind of having um, modalities with, with our, our deeper need. He thought that the driving human desire was to both be seen and to feel worthy of being seen. And, and he, yeah, he, yeah, very much, very much. Yeah. And he, so he links that with wisdom and, and he recognizes that we confuse these, but he believed that, and this is the work of Gustav Peebles, who I'll be speaking with soon. I'm excited. He believed that that illusory scarcity, that kind of illusory mix up between let's use Fromm's language being and having was necessary in order to maintain society. And he wrote that if wisdom were to gain social purchase, society itself would collapse. Um, which was, I, I, I just, uh, the, the point that Gustav made in a paper he wrote about it was that he used that to show a fundamental difference between Smith and Marx, whereas Smith believed we had to cling to that illusion and that mix up. Marx wanted to kind of blow it up entirely. Yeah, yeah. I, I, so, uh, yeah, keep going. I, I, yeah. Just, my, my, my yeah is, yep. Keep going. Good. <laughs> um, so to, to, to bring that back to where we are now, um, I think a, an interesting way to, to bring back actually some of the work of Zach Stein, Zach has uh, an idea that he's developed called the education commodity proposition. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that the force of commodification obviously is, is something that is very, it's, it's a driving force in, in socioeconomics today. And he, and he writes that as education has become commodified as it becomes more of a funnel into labor markets rather than acknowledged as a human making force in society not only is it is it not teaching wisdom but that the forms of knowledge being taught are narrowing and narrowing to a very particular yeah. level it's driving reciprocal narrowing yes much. exactly I, I agree i, I agree completely uh, let, let's just say very clearly i agree completely with zach on this point i think right. he's bang on about this i think he's he's exactly right about this yeah and i wonder i wonder to extend to to extend that theme, he's working in education. I, I haven't thought a lot about this, but it seems to me that it might be fair to suggest that wisdom and the forces of commodification are not complementary vectors. That as you commodify institutional forms, it becomes more difficult for them to entertain any notion of of cultivating wisdom. And so, much of the project of economics that I'm exploring is this idea of. Whatever route you take, whatever policies you want to employ to increasingly decommodify time so that the possibilities for how we exist within that time open up, right? That, that's one of the ways I think about that project and, and, and these kind of coming together. No, that's good. That's good. That goes towards Han's work about how the commodification that, you know, in, in his book, The Scent of Time, has atomized time for us. The time has mm. no, and he says, we can't linger with things anymore, which means we can't enter into, I would argue, we can't enter into religio. We can't couple with them. We can't enter into our participatory relationship with them because everything is atomized and buzzing uh, rather than there being a thread of developmental lingering and duration running through it. I agree mm. with that. In, in the interest of time, we're getting close up here. <laughs> <laughs> that happened very quickly. <laughs> um, there's there's a question that selfishly I've always wanted to ask a cognitive science and so a cognitive scientist, 
And so I'd, I'd like to see what what this brings up for you. Um, the, the notion of play, and I've heard you, you you've spoken about play before. Um, there is yeah. there's a lot of literature and study on play in children um, and infants and, yeah. and development in that sense. And there is a big strain in the kind of socioeconomic discourse of of what freedom means is this kind of transition from labor into play. And so an idea that is very unclear for me is how do we think about what play is in adults, right? And, and how yeah. does that differ from what's occurring in, in children? Well, I don't think it, I, I, I want to actually pull it apart in two, I, I think this is an important question. I want to sort of make a, a two-way distinction rather than just the distinction you made. Because mm-hmm. I think there's, I think we can actually get a better understanding of what I, what I call serious play in mm-hmm. adults it looks like by seeing the continuity, seeing both the continuities and the difference with ch- child play. Mm-hmm. And we need to distinguish both child play and adult play from fun. Uh-huh. Um, because one of the problems that that's in our culture, this is one of the criticisms I made, is that we have reduced play to fun generation. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and we've lost the fact that we, you know, the word didn't have that limitation. Let me give you two, and this is meant to be cross-cultural, two clear examples. So I, I, I do I listen to my English language and then I'll, I'll, I'll correct it. I do Tai Chi Chuan. That's what most people would say, right? Mm-hmm. And I've been doing it uh, for, uh, uh, for, you know, 29 years, right? But in Chinese, the verb isn't do, the verb is play. Mm, right. You play, you play. Tai Chi. You don't do Tai Chi, right? Mm. And if you think Tai Chi is about generating fun, you haven't understood Tai Chi. Tai Chi is more about generating flow. And here's the thing. Flow is very different from fun. It's an optimal experience for people, but it's not the same thing as having fun. In fact, they're they're very different kinds of motivational and uh, motivational experiences. Second, right? Think another example. Think about the idea of going to a play or playing music. Those originally didn't have, I mean, they maybe they've been reduced, right? But they originally didn't have the connotation of fun generation. Mm-hmm. Instead, you were trying to do something that was inherently developmental. That's also the idea in Tai Chi Chuan, that I'm engaging in a particular kind of practice that ultimately develops me the way children develop when they're playing. And what is that? What is that? What is serious play doing for us? Well, I mean, part of what I argue is that serious play is helping us with a problem. It's helping children uh, uh, deal with the problem. Um, And then we have an analogous existential problem. Uh, This analogy was part of the ancient tradition as the child is to the adult, the adult is to the sage, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And the idea here is, so if if, let's let's say I'm a child, um, let's use some of our earlier language. I'm at home in a particular, you know, configuration of the particular agent I am in the particular world I'm living in, right? Or the arena, not the not the physical environment, but that arena we were talking about earlier. So the child's in that sort of stage, right, in that world. Mm-hmm. The, ch- the child needs to get into another world, right? The, <laughs> the, child, needs, the child needs to be in – the ch- child needs to experience perspectives that it doesn't currently have, right? And mm-hmm. it, needs to beco- it needs to become a self that it currently isn't. Now, how do you do that? That's, really a, that's, a, that's a really, really hard problem, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and one, one of the ways – the children do that is they play 
They do enact play is enacted symbolism because what a symbol does is a, a symbol is symbol on joins two together. It's this Janus faced thing that points into the world you're in and out towards the world you need to get to. That's why a symbol is not just a metaphor. Metaphors mm. are within your world. Symbols are between world. Symbols are trans world. That's why I say they transframe. They don't mm. just reframe. Right now, because this has to do with perspectival and participatory development, the, play, the, the symbol has to be one you enact, one that you embody, right? Because it has to reach into the machinery of yourself, and it has to, it has to be how you enact your salience landscaping and perspectival knowing. You have to enact the symbol. That's play. That's serious play. That's play that is not driven by a desire for fun, but driven by a desire for development, Mm-hmm. Right now, of course, there's pleasure in it. I'm, I'm not trying to say that, but we, we've mistaken a marker or, or, of the process with the goal of the process. Right? Yeah. We've mistaken something that sort of flags when it when, when it's going well with what the goal of the process is. And that mm-hmm. and this is a, this is an old Platonic criticism. We often mistake the criterion with the goal. That's a mm-hmm. perennial thing we fall prey to. Human beings as adults need the same thing. And this is this goes to the heart of the work of you know Laurie's work, L.A. Paul's work on transformative experience, and Agnes Callard's work on aspiration. We need to move between worlds. Like if I'm going to have a child, mm-hmm. that's moving between worlds. Right. Or if I'm going to enter into seriously a long-term romantic relationship with somebody, that's entering, that's moving between worlds. Or if I'm going to uproot where I am and move and go through enculturation, move to and belong to another culture, like an immigrant, that is to move between worlds. Mm-hmm. Enculturing domicide in your culture and needing to get to a world of Religio and wisdom again, we need to move between worlds within the domicile of the meaning crisis. Mm-hmm. We need serious enacted analogies, enacted symbolism. We need serious play. And re- another way of understanding what the what religions are is that they are huge, you know, communities and structures, and I mean even physical buildings that have been structured for gathering people together to collectively engage in serious play. Wow. Yeah, maybe even to to weave that final thread back in, this idea of moving between worlds is is exactly as we probably both know what what Zach Stein's focus on edu- his book is totally. called Education in a Time Between Worlds, right? Yeah, no, no, and, uh, and again, Zach nor people need to pay attention to the work of Zach Stein. I think it is for the reasons that you're putting your finger on and we're both putting our fingers on in a, in a convergent manner is it's very pertinent to uh, so much of what we need to be thinking about seriously uh, right now. Yeah, and I, I would echo that for your work too, bringing, bringing not only the vocabulary, but, but all of this, this energy, this pa- my favorite bits in your lectures are that when you, you get passionate, you're yelling, you're banging on the table because right, this, isn't, this isn't some disembodied project for you. It, it, you can feel no, no. that this is something you're physically invested in. Um, yeah, and it's, yeah. it's inspiring. So I, I thank you for your work. I cannot wait to, to follow along as it carries on. And uh, I, I really enjoyed this time. I, I appreciate that, that, that you joined me here. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, yeah, I'm going to be carrying it on with uh, with my upcoming series on after Socrates. Yeah, uh, the pursuit and cultivation of wisdom through authentic dialogue, and it, it's going to it's tapping into so many of the themes 
that we discussed today. So um, I'm, yeah, I, I'm excited about it in the way you just described. I'm passionate about it. It's a very exciting time for me. All right. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. It was a, it was a real blast getting to chat with, with John. I did want to go back a little bit to the connection when we were talking about reciprocal narrowing and capitalist realism. Um, I think you could tell we were both getting pretty excited about it. And this is something um, that I'm learning you know, in, in my role as kind of hosting these podcasts I need to get better at. Uh, that was an area I would have liked to dwell on more, but I was so preoccupied with you know, what comes next and looking at, at some questions that I, I think I brought myself out of that space. So I just want to go back because I think it's really rich. Uh, John was was developing the idea of reciprocal narrowing with the example of an addict, right? So the addict drinks booze and the booze will kind of reduce the, uh, the cognitive machinery he has available in order to creatively solve problems. And as that, that scope of creative problem solving is narrowed, right? There are fewer options that present themselves to him. The, the ways that he can exist in the world uh, are narrowed and so that booze as a central factor becomes an easier and easier choice. And so he'll drink more booze and then more booze will further sever him from that cognitive capacity for creative problem solving. And it's this negative feedback loop that, that narrows in on itself. And I think there's a lot more work to be done to draw out that metaphor that is occurring in, in capitalism today, right? What is, what's the machine or what's the booze that we are engaging with structurally that is functioning to sever us from that, that creative problem-solving ability, all of the different cognitive machinery we have. And this is, I mean, this was Mark Fisher's point, right? That capitalism as a socioeconomic ideology organization is such that living inside of it reciprocally narrows the, our imaginal capacity, our creative capacity to imagine different ways of living, different ways of organizing ourselves. And on the surface, right, if, if you already kind of agree with these ideas, that's going to be a really attractive notion. But can we zoom in from, on that attraction and see, okay, that's a, that's a nice theory, but what is the machinery, right? What are the operative forces? What are the mechanisms at play? What am I doing on a day-to-day basis that is actually reciprocally narrowing my cognition, right? How is it that by living in a way that is formulated via capitalist society, that the options that present themselves to me are diminishing and narrowing? How am I being severed from my capacity to creatively solve problems, right? And not problems in a, in a specific sense, problems in a way that John was using, that just being a human being itself presents a problem with the abundance of information and the scarcity of your capacity to, to make sense of it all, right? There's always going to be an imbalance. And then the question is, if this is the case, that we are living in a particular form of capitalism that reciprocally narrows cognition, what would it mean, what would it take, and how would we think about redesigning a socioeconomic system that does just the opposite, just like John mentioned, right? What does it mean to have a socioeconomic system that engenders reciprocal expansion, reciprocal opening? What does it mean to live inside of a society that creates the conditions for people to increasingly connect with their capacity for creative problem solving, right? What are, what are the, 
the principles of, of institutions, whether they're education or whether it's tax policy, whether, you know, how we deal with provisioning some of the basics of life, like healthcare and transportation and housing, what are the elements that make these such that when we interact with them, when we live with and inside of them, we are reciprocally expanded as opposed to reciprocally narrowed? And I'll, I'll leave it at that. Uh, please, if anyone wants to join in on this discussion, has any ideas, get in touch. You can do so through the podcast website. That's musingmind.org slash podcast. There are contact links and all kinds of things there. Um, if you want to check out more of John's work, there are links on the show notes page. Uh, you can find his series on YouTube, Awakening to the Meaning Crisis. Um, he co-wrote a book titled uh, Zombies, a 21st Century Crisis. And he's been on a number of other podcasts. You can find him on the Future Thinkers podcast, on the Emerge podcast, on Zion 2.0. And he's done, a, and also actually with Rebel Wisdom, he's done a lot of work with them to kind of develop the idea of what are ecologies of practice, where are they, what is already emerging, and, and how can we participate in that emergence. All right. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time.